0: Hello? Okay, you're still there. Grand. Can we have the PowerPoint up if it's possible, please? We're in chapter 2 of 1 um, Corinthians, and uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting letter for a lot of reasons. Have you ever, um, maybe as a parent or maybe as a, a, an employer or something, have left instructions for someone to do something? Right? And there's a lot of women kind of looking at their husbands going, yep. And you come home or you come back to work after that time away and it's not been done or it has been done and it's not been done properly. Has that ever happened to any of you guys? Yeah, there's other people kind of say amen, brother there, preach it. Well, imagine that frustration of, but I told you what, the, I it was really clear and it can be real frustration and actually that's kind of a tone That Paul's letter to the Corinthians is about. It's 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 a letter of frustration. I've told you this stuff. It's passionate about him because he founded the church in Corinth. They are important to him. And he's frustrated. You know this stuff. Why have you kind of forgotten it? It's a bit frustrating. So Paul shows a whole gamut of emotions throughout the entirety of this letter. But this one, it starts off really interesting. It starts with this thing. And so when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom. Um, Katie Harris said that she was reading it in her version. It said, I didn't come with big, long words. And so that reminded me of a character in a well-known TV comedy that I used to watch. Yes, Prime Minister. <laughs> Sir Humphrey Appleby, right, where he would just wax lyrical about something absolutely crazy. Here's an example. So Humphrey Appleby goes to the prime minister and says, so I gather that you denied that Mr. Halifax's phone had been bugged. The prime minister says, well, obviously it was the one question today I could answer honestly. And he, Sir Humphrey Appleby says, yes, unfortunately, And I'll take a breath. Although the answer was indeed clear, simple and straightforward there is some difficulty in justifiably assigning it to the fourth of the epithets you applied to the statement in so much as the precise correlation between the information you communicated and the facts in so far as they can be determined and demonstrated is such as to cause epistemological problems of sufficient magnitude as to lay upon the logical and semantic resources of the English language a heavier burden than they can reasonably be expected to bear. James Hacker, you mean I lied? He went, yes! <laughs> That's kind of what came to mind when I was reading what Paul says. I came to you not with really big words and eloquence. I came to you with something really straightforward. Well, it's useful if you want to have turn to your Bible. says we read the entirety of 1 Corinthians, but particularly here to have Acts 18 open um, and the chapters around it. These, this is the story of, of how Paul... Finds the church in Corinth. And uh, so it's not terribly clear that map, but this is the story so far, as far as Axiatina is concerned. He, he's been at Philippi, and at Philippi he's thrown into jail by people because he's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He miraculously gets rescued from there, then he goes to Thessalonica. There it kicks off again. There's a big riot. People are not happy battered and bruised, he moves on to a place called Berea. And the people in Berea, they're really understanding. They, they're wrestling with this. They're interested. But the thugs in Thessalonica hear about it and say, right, let's go to Berea, cause a bit of trouble. So they go to Berea, stir up the crowd, more fighting. Paul flees away, goes to Athens. Now, he's walking around Athens. He's absolutely, utterly depressed, seeing so many idols and and. and and gods that people are worshipping, and he says, right, well, I'll talk to you in your language. So he tries to reveal to them the, the gospel using their own language, and actually, it's not a particularly successful mission. It says only a few people became Christians. He then goes to Corinth, okay, and Corinth is a little bit, you know, it's a it's, it's center of, th- of a number of things, money, sex, power, and spirituality. Does that sound a little bit familiar to the society we live in today? The priorities of money, sex, power, and spirituality. Yeah, well, that was Corinth at the time. And in the famous words of the maestro himself, um, Frank Sinatra, if the gospel can make it there, it can. You didn't sing it. That's what Paul thought. If it can make it here, it can make it anywhere. And so he goes to Corinth and he says, I'm not in a good way. I came to you with fear and trepidation. I came to you in weakness. He was battered and bruised. He said, I came not with wise and persuasive words. And it says in Acts 18, he was so scared God gave him a vision. And in the vision it says, don't be afraid. Keep talking. Keep speaking. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Keep speaking. And the only thing that he wanted to talk about in this place in Corinth was not the philosophy of the Stoics or the Epicureans. It was purely this, to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. The Greek word is on a scandal. They can't get over it. And to the Greeks, well, it's just idiotic. It's foolishness. And Paul didn't engage with the philosophical wranglings. Yes, he debated in Athens, but here he focused, refocused, and wouldn't be shifted from the simple truth, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Well, because everything of the gospel is summed up here. It talks about God. It talks about sin. It talks about the incarnation. It talks about punishment, sacrifice. It talks, in a nutshell, about God's love. In Athens, he debated, and arguments, he didn't have great results. In Corinth, he had a different tactic. He had the kiss tactic. Keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) Focusing on the cross. I'm reading at the moment um, a book which is about this thick, so it's going to take me about five years. Um, It's Just As I Am, the autobiography of Billy Graham. And he says this at the very, very start. Nor is the evangelist free to change the message any more than newscaster the news. The main thrust of our message, and you see this throughout his story, the main thrust of our message is centered on Christ and what he's done for us by his death and resurrection and the need for us to respond by committing our lives to him. It is the message that Christ came to forgive us and give us new life and hope as we turn to him. Amen? That is the gospel. That's it. And throughout his story, that's what he focuses on. Christ crucified and risen again. Now there is a place for debate. There's a place for discussion, for wrestling through questions. I'm a big believer in apologetics. The fact that the Christian faith makes sense, that it's got reasonableness to it, that it's okay to wrestle with these things. It's all right to do social action and mission. It's all right to feed the hungry. It's fine to build houses for the homeless and campaign for the unjust. But the heart of the gospel is about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was incredibly eloquent, wise, well read, but he knew that wasn't enough. And so after Thessalonica, after Athens, he's got a new awareness of just focusing purely and simply at the heart of the gospel, which is Christ and him crucified. And lo and behold, a church is born that exists for many years after that. So my first appeal is for us this morning as we go beyond these doors is to not be frightened or dissuaded to talk about Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. We can easily water it down. You know and I know the tricks of talking to your friends about God and church, and it's safe. You mentioned Jesus Christ on the cross. It's still a scandal on. It's still a stumbling block. It still sounds foolish. Don't be afraid of that, because that is the heart of the gospel. It's the only thing that matters. Everything else is transformational from that. So he speaks. Message was not with persuasive words. And the reason is because they'd heard it all before. They were used to the latest stoic philosopher, the Epicurean, turning up and using all the tricks of the trade. Um, I really meant to bring a sword with me. The reason being is because a few years ago, uh, when I was at university, uh, I, was, uh, I was taught a little bit of stage sword fighting and uh, I don't know if you've watched kind of all the medieval movies and you know, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and all that. And it looks really complex. Even Star Wars and those lightsaber battles, and they look all really complex. And wow, how do they do that? Someone showed me. I wish I had a big stick. We got a big stick. to have a drumstick? That'll do. Is that, is that right, Tom? Good. Right, this'll do nicely. Right. Imagine a sword. Needs a handle. There are five movements. One, two, three, four, and five. I was taught that. Next time I watched Warner Who Prince of These and went, I know how you do that. Every all these really complex things have been debunked because I saw the tricks of the trade. And now I've ruined every sword fight in Hollywood for you too. Excellent. It's because the tips and the tricks of the trade were used by these people and made it all complex and very impressive. And the orators and the speakers of the day used all these tricks of the trade. They knew them. They weren't impressed by them anymore. People felt they'd heard it all before. They knew it. And it's just like today in our what's called postmodern culture. People feel like they've heard it all before. They've been duped before. They've been let down. They've been given empty promises that have not been fulfilled. They've heard it all before. Same as the church in Corinth. And Paul says in verse 4, I didn't come with wise and persuasive words, but, but what? He came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. If you turn again, you might want to Acts chapter 18. I'm sure there were probably miracles. I'm sure there were healings, deliverances and all that, but none of them are mentioned in Acts 18. But one event is... Paul is taken by the Jews who are a bit upset about what he's saying and thrown before the Roman proconsul Gallio. And he's going to, they've got him set up. He's going to be tried and probably put in prison and all that. And they throw the accusations at him. Paul, it says, was about to speak. And Gallio says, do you know what? There's nothing to answer. Just throw the case out. Off you go. Coincidence or God-incidence? Is that one of those miraculous things that happens, but it just seems so normal that we forget that God is still alive and active? I love the fact that could be one of the things Paul's talking about: a demonstration of the Spirit's power, that he gets away scot-free without having to say anything in his defense. A demonstration of a God's, of God's power. There's a place for discussion. There's a place for questions. But especially in this culture we live in, people are less concerned about whether it makes sense. And what they're concerned about is whether it works or not. Does homeopathy make sense? I don't know, but does it work? Did it work for you? That was horoscopes thing. I don't know how they work, but did it work for you? That's what people are more interested in. That Christian stuff, does it work for you? People want to know the power of real testimony, real story, real life-changing events. The proof of the reality being impacted by answered prayer, miracles, healing, restoration, reconciliations of broken relationships, transformations of character and situations, and ultimately people's salvation. Reason and logic has its place, but the foundation needs to be an encounter and experience of the Holy Spirit of God in someone's life. Otherwise, we are building our faith and other people's faith on logic and people's teaching. As we know from the list of, of men and women who've fallen from grace as Christian leaders, People fall and people fail. When we rely on that, we're in dodgy ground. When we rely on the impact of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that's the foundation we need. Nicky Gumbel, when he does the Alpha conferences, um, he doesn't say to someone, will you give us your testimony? In the interviews, he asks one simple question. He says, can you tell everybody here, what difference has Jesus Christ made in your life? What difference has Jesus Christ made in your life? And then they share what Jesus has done. A great question to ask ourselves in a regular occurrence. Because we want to, we need to see more demonstrations of the Spirit's power, don't we? I don't know about you, but I want to hear about people being healed like Mike and Christine shared last week. I don't want to hear just about people um, being prayed for. I want to hear the stories of people being freed from addictions, freed from difficult situations. I want to hear about relationships being reconciled and healed and transformed and emotional scars um, healed and restored. I want to hear about people coming to know Christ. I thank God our church is growing, but I want to see our church grow with people who know Jesus for the first time. Is that what you want as well, or is that just the correct answer? Because it's great having a great fellowship of people who've become Christians. That's wonderful. And the voices of people praising is fab. But I want to see people going, this Jesus, oh, he's brilliant. I've never known him before. I want to hear that. Maybe you do too. Do we want to see the demonstration of the Spirit's power? Do we seek it? Do we yearn for it? Are we expecting it? Are we asking for more of the Spirit's power? Or are we a bit scared to? Because, oh, if it doesn't happen... We need more of the Spirit's power. Move on to 6 to 10. We do, however, preach a message of wisdom among the mature. So although this message, this gospel seems a bit weird, a bit random, a bit foolish, Paul says, yeah, it is to the world, but we preach a message to the mature. Mature sounds a bit like, oh, it's about age, it's about experience. A better translation is initiated. We preach a message of wisdom to those who get it, those who've experienced it, understand it. Focus on the cross is foolish to those who don't. The message of wisdom is to those who are initiated, those to whom it makes sense. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. And a question I have often asked is, should the gospel be culturally relevant? For years, I thought absolutely yes, Till a friend of mine said, I'm wondering whether it needs to be culturally irrelevant. Should it be irrelevant or has it always been and should be accepted? It always has been, always will be culturally irrelevant. I totally, passionately believe that access to the church, access to the gospel, needs to be made as simple and straightforward as possible. But there's a danger when we do that, that we make the gospel, the culture, the facilitating of the gospel, more important than the content of the message. Um, William Booth said this at the end of the 19th century about the 20th century church. I wonder as you read it, is it true? The chief danger, he's talking about the church in the next century, the confronts the church in the coming century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, heaven without hell. Does that describe what's going on out there? Because I think this man was a prophet to say that. And I think part of that has been sometimes we as the church have been so desperate to make the gospel palatable that we've lost the power of the gospel. We've let the culture dictate, almost like the packaging dictates what you buy. Because we live in a, in a time, it's a really fancy word, it's called postmodernism. modernism um, I'm not going to go into deep details here, okay, because I'm, I'm going to tell you really simply. There's the pre-modern era, which is like, God put it there, it's always been there, finish, full stop, get with it, okay? That's the pre-modern era, Okay? Then the Enlightenment happened, and people went, oh, science. Science proves everything. Onwards and upwards, inevitable progress. That's the way to go. Ha-ha. Then people went, that, well, we've been let down by science. We've been let down by facts. That's going to do the postmodern thing, which is basically summed up by, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's postmodernism, and it is bombarded by lots of isms. These are the, some of the isms that we are surrounded by today. Maybe not you personally, but our society is driven by consumerism, narcissism, materialism, hedonism, pluralism and relativism, kind of the same, different words, skepticism and humanism. There's the love of the use of stuff. There's the love of ourselves. There's the love of money and being able to purchase things. There's the love of pleasure and experience at all costs. There's the love of the fact that we're all going in the same path. Every truth is the same. Mine's true. Yours true, which is actually epistemology. It just can't be true. A true is a true. So my truth and your truth, if they're different, they have, they're, one's wrong, one's right. You know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> but it is Today, in our multicultural society, pluralism and relativism is rife. Skepticism, I doubt the big story. I doubt the authorities who tell us these things. I question, I query, I don't accept. And humanism, we can all sort it out ourselves, thank you very much. Is that our world? That's the world that we live in. Isms, there's loads more. And I've used this illustration in the midst of that before. Thermostats and thermometers. Our way as the church Thermometers that just reflect the conditions of the world around us and go up and down depending on what's out there. Or are we called to be thermostats that are set to a temperature and influence the world around us? In attempts to ensure the gospel is accessible, we need to remain prophetically distinctive. So I would say the gospel needs to be culturally relevant in its accessibility, but it also needs to be culturally distinctive in order to make a difference. That's why it doesn't make sense. That's why it doesn't fit with the isms of the age. And to understand this, we need to go back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, where people were building a tower up to heaven, and it's a symbol of humanity striving to reach the level of God. And the thing is, the reason why the gospel doesn't really fit in any ism, 1st century Corinth, 21st century Skipton, is this. The basic premise of many philosophies, many ideologies and theologies, is how we can get to God, or how we can get to Godness, or Godness level of control. That's what many philosophies are based on. The gospel is based not on how we get to God, but how God could get to us. That's why it doesn't fit how God could get to us, and it is seen in the cross of Christ. It's revealed by the Holy Spirit. This top secret, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't make sense to the world, but it makes sense of the world. It makes sense of the world. In verse 9, there's a great quote about the The mystery of God. It makes it sound a bit like a Dan Brown novel, doesn't it? The secret knowledge of God. What is that secret knowledge? It's just the gospel. Who can understand this? Because God has a level of unknowability. But how can we know God? We know God... By the Holy Spirit, made knowable by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Let's not pretend that we can box God, suss him out, and tame him fully. The only way that we can know God is when he reveals himself to us. And how he reveals himself to us is through Jesus Christ and laterally through the Holy Spirit. This whole passage, in fact, this whole book, but this passage is incredibly Trinitarian. When you read the word God, it's Father, if you think about it like that. And then there's Jesus' the Son, and then there's a big spattering of Holy Spirit. The unity of the triune God is throughout this passage. God's love seen through Jesus and risen, given out to us by the Holy Spirit. And in verses 10 to 16, there's a big push on the Holy Spirit. The Corinthian church had got reliant on their ability to understand the universe and God and themselves, but they got themselves into lots of trouble. And we'll learn about these over the next few weeks. Paul tries to address because they were relying upon their knowledge, their human-based knowledge. And Paul says you need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is referred to 10 times in seven verses. Do you think he's trying to draw your attention to something? Only the Holy Spirit can reveal to us god only the holy spirit can reveal the gospel to us and to other people and we need the holy spirit when we share the gospel perhaps you were a fervent young christian once who wanted to share the good news because that's what you were told to do and you were sharing the four spiritual laws or whatever picture and you're kind of inside going, I hope I get this right, because if I get this wrong, this person's going to be damned for eternity. It's a bit of pressure, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if you felt that. I certainly felt it. if I get this wrong, this person, I'm going to let them down. i have let God down. What pressure. It's not our job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. Paul goes on in a little bit to refer to um, the jobs within the church that Apollos and he did. And we're, we're trying to do a little bit of gardening and planting of stuff. And so I'm learning a lot. And you have to, someone has to sort the soil out to make sure it's usable. And then another person maybe plants a seed. And then someone else will water that seed. And then there's sunshine and there's, there's conditions. And then there may be some weeds that need to be taken up for, and to ensure good growth. And then eventually the harvest is brought in. That may be the same person. It may be completely different people. You may plant a seed that you never see harvested. You may have shared the gospel with someone whenever you were 15. And they will, you'll have forgotten about it. And then someday, as we walk the golden pavements of eternity, they come up to you and say, by the way, thank you because I'm here because you said that. And we won't know until then. There'll be people who come up to us while we're tuning up our golden harps, sitting on a cloud, and saying, thank you so much because you talked to this person. They became a Christian. because of them, I'm now here. It's not our job to convince, to convict, or to convert. That is God's job. Our job is to bear witness and testify to Jesus Christ, Him crucified, and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the lives of others. That's our job. The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convert, to convict, and to convince. We have a job to do. But I wonder, do we take it seriously enough that God's got to be involved for us to pray for people who we don't, who we who we know who don't know Jesus yet? Or have we given that up because it's their postmodern twenty first century Western right to choose their own path of truth? Is that our get out clause? Or have we got a responsibility to share Jesus Christ and him crucified? And pray for the movement of the Holy Spirit. We're told in Scripture that the spirit of the age has blinded people's eyes. Do we wrestle in prayer over the souls of our friends, our family, our neighbors, our colleagues who are unknown in the kingdom because they don't know Jesus? When was the last time you prayed for someone by name specifically to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? And wrestled with it for a period of time and prayed someone into the kingdom one of the most influential leaders of the Christian church in the early 300s, Augustine, was a complete reprobate. His mother prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. He eventually became one of the most significant voices to theology in the church. And he says, it was my mom, Monica, prayed and prayed and prayed. These are spiritual truths understood by spiritual people. We need the Holy Spirit in the coming to know Jesus and in the continuing growing. We need the Holy Spirit when we read the Scripture to be inspired of what it means. We need the Scripture to be able to know that what we're experiencing is the Holy Spirit. We need both. But my goodness, my friends, don't we really need another fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit for healing and restoration personally? to our friends, our families, our colleagues who are struggling with this, that, or the other thing, the broken relationships, the damaged lives caused by sin and selfishness, don't we need God's Spirit to move in a demonstration way? It starts with the proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So we've had a couple of challenges this morning to take away. Not to be frightened, to focus on Jesus Christ and Him crucified not to be frightened of it. To know that it doesn't depend on clever words, but it depends on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the demonstration of his power. To be content to know that that gospel will not sit easily with the spirit of the age. You will face opposition. You'll face people going, you're talking the biggest load of nonsense. It doesn't make sense. Don't be surprised. It doesn't unless the Holy Spirit's involved. And that the Holy Spirit is what we need to reveal to us who God is, both as Christians and those who don't yet know the Lord. Amen? I'm going to call the band up and we're going to pray together. We're going to pray together and the band are going to play... We do um, there must be more, okay? So it's up to you whether you want to sit, stand, kneel, whatever, because we're going to pray for our friends and our family who don't know Jesus yet. I'm going to encourage you, if you want to say their name out loud or you want.